a deal between U.S. and Chinese regulators, but will it bring an end to the ongoing debate over audit access? And will Beijing keep its promises? Washington suspending 26 Chinese airlines in September. The move responds to China's halting of over two dozen U.S. flights over COVID-19 policy. Visiting Taiwan, a new trend for lawmakers. More than 10 delegations from North America, Europe and Asia will visit the island before the new year. And underground churches in China raided by authorities. Beijing is asking state-run churches to toe the Communist Party's line. Welcome to China in Focus, I'm Tiffany Meyer. Before we dive into today's news, make sure to use the link below to subscribe to our newsletter and an exclusive behind-the-scenes snapshot for our readers. Keep an eye out. The newsletter will land in your inbox Friday morning. U.S. and Chinese regulators are taking a step forward on a long-term debate. They signed an audit agreement this week about Chinese companies listed in the U.S. But some are debating whether China will keep its promises. Here's more. A new agreement could mean progress on a long-held debate between U.S. and Chinese regulators. But experts say they're not convinced. In China, they're turning their machinery and their manufacturing to preparation for warfare. So I think this is a delaying tactic. I don't see this as good for American investors. Officials announced the signing Friday. They say the agreement is a first step. That's for the U.S. to inspect registered accounting firms in China and Hong Kong. U.S. Audit Overseer, the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board, or PCAOB, called it the most detailed agreement with China so far. The U.S. has long required that Chinese companies listed in the U.S. open their audit books for American regulators. But Beijing has refused to allow it, citing national security reasons. As of Friday, the U.S. identified over 160 Chinese companies that may face delisting for failure to comply with those audit requirements. The new deal comes as a relief for those companies, since now they still stand a chance at keeping their access to the U.S. market. PCAOB disclosed in a statement that the agreement would allow U.S. regulators sole discretion to inspect firms free from Chinese consultation or input. They will also be able to view all audit work papers and retain information as needed. The statement added that the PCAOB has direct access to interview and take testimony from all personnel associated with the audits. The Chinese side has said it hopes the agreement solves the audit issue and helps avoid passive delisting. But some are expressing doubt on whether Beijing will hold up its end. Chairman of Securities and Exchange Commission Gary Gensler commented on the signing. He said the agreement will be meaningful only if the PCAOB actually can inspect and investigate completely audit firms in China. But there has been fraud. We saw it with Luck and Co Coffee and other companies. We, and we've seen repeated examples of fraud. Even when there's U.S. court judgments that have come against these fraudulent Chinese companies, there's no way to get the money back. Kevin Freeman is the host of Economic War Room. He says he doesn't have much faith in the agreement. Freeman suggests that investors should steer clear of Chinese companies, saying that if something were to happen geopolitically with China, all of that investment will become dead money. Washington will suspend more than two dozen flights from China to the U.S. over the next month. Officials made the announcement on Thursday. 
The suspension takes effect September 5th and runs through the 28th. The decision responds in kind to Beijing's suspension of 26 American flights. The Department of Transportation accused Beijing of violating an air travel agreement and called the move unfair to airlines. China applied a policy this month, saying if 4% of a flight's passengers test positive, the flight will be suspended for a week. If that number rises to 8%, the suspension will extend to two weeks. Back to the U.S. suspension. Regulators halted seven Air China flights from New York City and 19 others from Los Angeles. That's after similar decisions earlier this year. The Transportation Department opted to suspend 44 China-bound flights back in January. China then suspended 44 U.S.-bound flights the same month. A new trend seems to be forming among lawmakers visiting Taiwan. It all started with House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's high-profile visit to the island and Beijing's fiery reaction. Let's take a look at what's happening. Taiwan is becoming a hot destination for U.S. lawmakers. Just this Friday, the island's President Tsai Ing-wen met with Senator Marsha Blackburn in Taipei. There, she spoke about Chinese aggression. And they were just waiting for an excuse to bully Taiwan. They are clearly testing Taiwan's resolve and the rest of the world's tolerance for even more imperialist violence. In a statement, Blackburn said she would continue to stand with Taiwan and its right to freedom and democracy. She added that, quote, Xi Jinping doesn't scare me. Taiwan's President Tsai Ing-wen called Blackburn an important and close friend. In response to the trip, the Chinese embassy in Washington said Beijing would take resolute countermeasures. The meeting comes against a backdrop of uncertainties surrounding relations between Beijing, Taiwan and the U.S. Among the biggest questions, will the Chinese Communist Party try to take Taiwan by force? The U.S. does not have formal diplomatic relations with Taiwan, but is bound by law to provide the island with the means to defend itself. What's more, Taiwan is critical for America's safety. The island is part of a line of defense stretching from Japan to Malaysia. Known as the first island chain, it prevents the Chinese regime from launching submarine-based missile attacks against the U.S. The U.S. also relies on Taiwan for its most advanced semiconductors, or microchips. These tiny devices are the brains of modern electronics, from cars to computers and iPhones to fighter jets and missiles. Tensions reached a new high following House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit to the island early this month. She is now the highest-ranking U.S. politician to visit Taiwan in 25 years. Beijing responded with week-long military drills around the island. But that hasn't stopped other American politicians from going. Last week, Senator Edward Markey and Indiana Governor Eric Holcomb also visited Taiwan. Other countries are also showing support. Officials from at least six countries plan to visit Taiwan before the end of 2022. That includes lawmakers from Japan, Canada, Germany, Britain, Denmark, Lithuania, and the European Union. A Canadian lawmaker plans to visit Taiwan in October. China responded that it would take forceful measures. Canada replied that China should not use the planned visit as excuse for military aggression. A Japanese lawmaker already met with Taiwan's president this Tuesday. He plans to visit the island again in October. Eight lawmakers from Germany plan to go to Taiwan in October. The trip was planned in 2020 but got postponed because of the pandemic.
Taiwan's top China policy advisor is heading to the U.S. in September. The purpose of the trip is to rally international support for the island at a time when Taiwan is increasingly under the shadow of Chinese military aggression. The advisor, Chiu Tai-shen, will speak at the Brookings Institution and meet with U.S. officials. Taiwan's foreign minister says the island won't bow to Beijing's pressure. Even though Chinese trying to coerce us uh, internationally, trying to coerce our friends uh, to stop our friends from coming in, uh, it won't work. Wu says Beijing has been sending warships and fighter jets across the median line. That's an unofficial divide between mainland China and Taiwan. Obviously, China's motivation is to destroy the Taiwan Strait's status quo. And after this, they want to cut down on Taiwan's defensive space. He notes Taiwan has been working very closely with the U.S. We want to procure more defensive weapons from the United States, and we also need to work or discuss with the United States in depth concerning Taiwan's defense, and that has been going on. Wu points to Beijing's global ambition. You know, Chinese motivation is not limited to Taiwan. They have ambition over the East China Sea, South China Sea, even beyond the first island chain. They also set up uh, strings of pearls uh, in the Indian Ocean. Wu urges all like-minded countries to work together to prevent Beijing from expanding its authoritarianism. The Chinese Communist Party is tightening its grip on Catholic churches. In August, police raided house churches in several provinces, including Shanxi, Shanxi, Jilin and Sichuan, plus the city of Beijing. That's according to reports from Bitter Winter magazine. In the northeastern city of Changchun, authorities raided a house church. Agents reportedly beat the believers attending the service. Two women suffered heart attacks. Authorities took nine people into custody. In Sanxi, authorities showed up when 70 home church members gathered together. Police arrested the adults, though it's unclear how many of them were detained. China has about 12 million Catholics, and their churches are divided into two groups, state-run and underground. The state-run associations reject the Pope's authority, but the underground churches recognize it and often face persecution because of it. In 2018, the Vatican and Beijing signed a historic deal. It allows Beijing and the Pope to appoint bishops in China. Following the deal, the Pope recognized eight Chinese bishops Beijing previously appointed without his approval. At the same time, Beijing is upping its engagement with its state-run churches. This Tuesday, a top political advisor in the Communist Party met with leadership from two state-sanctioned Catholic organizations. The advisor, Wang Yang, urged them to firmly uphold the Communist Party's leadership and push Catholicism to adapt to socialist society. Wang also asked the organization's leaders to resist infiltration by foreign forces and to make Catholicism more Chinese in form. A Hong Kong media tycoon and pro-democracy activist will face trial without jury. The case is renewing criticism that Beijing's national security law imposed on the city is eroding its legal system. Jimmy Lai, founder of now-defunct media Apple Daily, is facing a trial without jury in Hong Kong. That's after he denied charges based on Beijing's national security law. The trial is set to start in December and will last 30 days. Unlike Jimmy Lai, six former management staff intended to plead guilty. That will probably grant them a sentence reduction. 
And if Jimmy Lai is found guilty of national security charges, he could face life behind bars. 74-year-old Lai is a media tycoon and pro-democracy activist. He was an iconic figure in Hong Kong's 2019-2020 pro-democracy protests. Lai was detained after police raided Apple Daily's headquarters offices in 2020 and confiscated large amounts of digital objects. Lai is currently serving 20 years in prison. French agency AFP saw a judge-only trial order for Lai, saying there is a quote, risk of perverting the course of justice if the trial is conducted with a jury. Instead, he will face a three-judge court panel selected by Hong Kong's government. But international legal observers fear for Hong Kong's legal system and say the judge-only trial is a major concern. The city's national security law, introduced by Beijing, has moved cases away from Hong Kong's jury trial system. Critics call the national security law a useful tool for Beijing to crush dissents. Coming up, a soft power contest between China and Hollywood. We sat down with Chris Fenton, author of Feeding the Dragon, as he reflects on his role in opening up the music and movie industry to China. Well, we were definitely a part of it, and I was a cog in the wheel in the process. I think looking back now, um, I do feel rather guilty about being part of that process that has gotten here to where we are today. Find out more in just a minute here on China in Focus. Welcome back to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Next, we look at soft power messaging coming out of China through Hollywood, beginning with the latest Minions movie. We sat down with Chris Fenton, U.S.-China expert and author of Feeding the Dragon, to find out just how far flung this is and what it means for us here in America. Chris, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. Thanks for having me back. So recently, the Little Yellow Minions and the Despicable Me franchise has been making a lot of headlines, and it just got its China release. And in the news right now is the difference in ending. So spoilers ahead, but China's ending kind of, you know, the bad guy doesn't win, doesn't get away. So how do you see this changing? What is the soft power messaging coming out of China? Well, I think it was a two-prong attack uh, in regards to the editing that, that China censors either pushed Universal to do or actually did themselves. Um, number one was obviously making sure that the villain was uh, captured and imprisoned. Number two was a message or a soft power message in terms of some of Xi Jinping's birth uh, policies moving forward and trying to um, get more of the population proactive as far as procreating uh, to keep the population from decreasing. So we saw a two-pronged deal there. And as far as Universal, the studio is concerned, I mean, if they want to have that movie released, they have no choice but to comply. Uh, they have two different motivations for getting that movie in. Number one is obviously the box office grosses that they can garner if they can get the movie into box uh, into theaters in China. And number two is they have that new Beijing theme park that's actually 70% owned by the Chinese government, but they have a vested interest in that working. And the Minions IP is very valuable to that theme park. 
And on the second note, real quick, it seems like maybe not everyone would catch it, right? But China did have their one-child policy for a really long time, which really caused this population imbalance. Most families only wanted boys because of historical Chinese culture. But then now in the movie, right, they end with three little girls. <laughs> it really seems to be pushing, like you mentioned, China's now three-child policy. But this kind of shift where females are getting more attention. So do you see that message really getting across in China or how do you see that playing out? Well, I don't think the consumer, and by the way, the movie still didn't work very well over the weekend. It came in third place. I think it's opening day. It did just a smidgen more than $3 million US. So it definitely wasn't a big success. Um, but I don't think the consumers, at least from what I've seen off of Weibo and some of the criticism, um, has really they they didn't really um, find it interesting the way that editing was done at the end. That was really done in in terms of getting government support and the government essentially pushing this policy and pushing this idealism. But the consumers weren't buying it, and I think they had an issue and and actually had some throwback and criticism about the movie because of it. And expanding on this soft power messaging, what do we see kind of coming out of China into the U.S. through Hollywood? Well, the good thing about the China-Hollywood uh, relationship is that the risk-reward calculus simply isn't paying off like it used to. So we did see a lot of brand integration of China proactively in movies. Um, we saw various things like, say, the nine-dash line used or uh, villains avoided around the world or even certain things that the rest of the world couldn't see because Hollywood knew that China wouldn't want the rest of the world to see it. Now we're noticing that some of these edits just to get a movie into China are basically just for China, which is a positive. Uh, we no longer um, are feeling, I'm not feeling like Hollywood is necessarily censoring itself um, after a movie is made in order to please Chinese censors for the worldwide cut of the movies. It's being done just for the domestic cut. Now, that said, there's still a lot of premeditated censorship in Hollywood in terms of sensitive items that they know China is going to have problems with and possibly blackball not only the studio, but all the individuals involved with the film to begin with. It'll be interesting to see whether Tom Cruise, for instance, actually gets a movie into the China market anytime soon after what we saw with the Taiwan flag and Top Gun. And Chris, given kind of the current environment and how we got here, you kind of mentioned in your book, Feeding the Dragon, I have a copy here, I see one behind you too, but you kind of mentioned how you kind of played a big role in opening the music and movie industry in China. So looking back, would you have done things differently knowing what you know now, or do you see Hollywood's kowtowing to China happening either way? Well, we were definitely a part of it, and I was a cog in the wheel in the process. I think looking back now, um, I do feel rather guilty about being part of that process that has gotten here to where we are today. Part of the reason I wrote the book was to try to show the fog of war and the idea that a lot of people like myself were embarking on this U.S.-China collaborative uh, business model because we thought, A, we were getting our products and services from the United States into a market that was normally closed off to them. Um, B, it was growing GDP and um, increasing jobs here in the United States and around the West. And C, that it was spreading the aspirational power and influence of democracy in a communist country. And now, as we've seen, 
that really hasn't worked all that well. Yes, we've had the sugar high of creating revenues from products and services that got a good decade run in that market, but we're also seeing that a lot of the things we did in order to please the government to get access to that market caused us to create competitors domestically in China that are now gobbling up market share away from the American and the Western competitors. So we really created our own worst enemies over there. Um, and on top of it, we really mitigated our beliefs, our principles, our values, the things that made us Americans and made us part of the democratic world in order to get that access. And I think a lot of us now are regretting it. And Chris, given the consequences of especially Hollywood kind of kowtowing to China, how do you see that relationship going forward? Is it going to change? Is it going to stay the same? Well, I think going forward, we're now seeing, like I said, the risk-reward calculus isn't paying off anymore. So I would like to believe that we're going to go back to protecting the freedoms of creative expression and free speech rights of our filmmakers and allow them to create and cultivate the stories that they want to tell on the big screen in the way that they want to tell them. If they are universally uh, relevant, if they're relevant to the Chinese audience and the Chinese government feels that they're not sensitive for their audience, they'll let them in and those movies will mo be monetized. But outside of those films, we shouldn't be trying to uh, force a square peg into a round hole and try to placate the Chinese government with every movie um, and with everything that the corporate side of a studio does. Um, we need to stand up to China. We need to make sure that the blackballing universally does not occur. We need to make sure all the studios back each other in the event that China does retaliate. Because as we've seen, even with the red line that China had in terms of Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan, if you actually stand up to them and you call them out on those red lines and call them out on that chest beating, sometimes they go into retreat or actually don't follow through on a lot of the threats that they have. And Chris, you mentioned earlier how Hollywood was one way of hoping to get democracy into a communist regime. So given what we've seen with the Chinese regime, do you think the Chinese regime can change going ahead? Uh, I would like to hope they would, but I don't see that ever happening, at least during my lifetime. I think Xi Jinping in the uh, 10 years that I've been following him since he took over for Hu Jintao has really put, um, I guess, a bit of a head fake on us. It, it felt like it was opening more, I would say, in 2012, 2013, 2014. But then it started to close again. And right around 2016, and when Donald Trump was president and we entered the trade war, we really started to see that closing and that turning inward become more and more accelerated. To date, he has only seven people on that standing committee of the Politburo. It's a very consolidated part of his power base. Um, and he is gotten rid of a lot of his critics. So he is ruling that country with an iron fist. There's a lot of resentment around the world towards him um, and his government, and that is causing them to retreat even further. I just don't simply see an opening occur um, that's going to make things better for Hollywood, nor really any industry that's trying to gain access to that market without doing some serious kowtowing to that government. And Chris, any last words you'd like to add? Yeah, I, my, my last word is that I don't want war or cold war with that superpower on the other side of the Pacific. So we do need to figure out how to constructively and very disruptively 
reset and rebalance the playing field, not just between the United States and, and China, but also between the allies that we hold dearly around the world in China, too. Um, if we figure out that right size of decoupling and that right size of rebalance, yet also keep the tentacles of commerce and culture intertwined with the two superpowers, we will avoid Cold War and war. But we really can't keep the status quo the way it is. Otherwise, we are going to become more and more like China every day. Chris, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you on the show. Thanks so much for having me. That's all for today's China In Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. If you have any feedback on this show or have something you'd like to see us cover, send us an email at chinainfocus at ntd.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for watching and see you tomorrow.